We're going to jump right in tonight. If you're with us for the first time, I want to say thank you for joining us. This is Daring Dialogues. This is Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, where we talk all things God, relationship, spirituality, sometimes a little bit of a philo- a little bit of philosophy, but mainly we try to talk about what we believe. What's out there? What are people thinking? Where do these uh, thoughts and ideas and philosophies and doctrines come from? <laughs> right? So we just started reading one of the, I would say, probably most prolific theologians, one of them of our time, black theologians, by the name of James Cone. If you are not familiar with uh, James Cone, he was a distinguished professor of theology at Union Theological Seminary. Some of his works include God of the Oppressed, A Black Theology of Liberation, one of my absolute favorite uh, studies and reads, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Um, James Cone passed away recently, a couple of years back, um, but his work continues to live on through future theologians, through current theologians. His work continues to live on through the actual experiences of the black church, believe it or not. So we have decided that we're going to take a dive into his theology, into the origins, because a lot of people have had some questions about what black liberation is, what black theology is. A lot of people have tried to tie it to CRT, which is critical race theory. Um, But critical race theory actually stands on its own. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So let's jump in to his introduction tonight. And then let's see if we can start working through chapter one, which is called Toward a Constructive Definition of Black Power. Introduction. Black power is an emotionally charged term which can evoke either angry rejection altogether from both black and white people, by the way, or passionate acceptance. Some critics reject black power because to them it means blacks hating whites, while others describe it as the doctrine of Booker T. Washington in contemporary form. But the advocates of black power hail it as the only viable option for black people. For these persons, black power means black people taking the dominant role in determining the relationship that they wanna have in American society with white people. That's it. Black people taking the dominant role, becoming self-determining in how they're going to engage white people in American society. Now we know that that idea, right, has expanded beyond that now, as he was writing this probably 20, 30 years ago, but that was sort of the initial idea. We want to be self-determining. You know, we don't want to deal with the, um, the patronizing tone that was being taken with black people in the 40s and 50s, right, treating all black people including adult black people like children. They wanted to step out of that. They wanted to step away from it. They wanted to move from under 
people feeling like they had a paternal right to control the minds, the hearts, the spirituality, the future, and the destiny of black people in America. Cone says, if, as I believe, black power is the most important development in American life in this century, there is a need to begin to analyze it from a theological perspective. In this work, an effort is made to investigate the concept of black power, placing primary emphasis on its relationship to Christianity, the church, and contemporary American theology. Now, last time we opened up this book, we already, Cone had already acknowledged that when he first wrote this work, that he was not taking into um, consideration womanist theology, but he did come to later accept and receive womanist theology. So I just want to put that caveat in there. He says, I know that some religionists would consider black power as the work of the Antichrist. Indeed, as we look around, black people are continually being demonized for thinking for themselves, for having their own notions about what is right and wrong. Um, Yeah, we're still being demonized for having our own thoughts, unfortunately. Others would suggest that such a concept should be tolerated as an expression of Christian love to the misguided black brother. It is my thesis, however, that black power, even in its most radical expression, is not the antithesis of Christianity, nor is it a heretical idea to be tolerated with painful forbearance. It is rather Christ's central message to 20th century America. And unless the empirical denominational church makes a determined effort to recapture the man Jesus through a total identification with the suffering poor as expressed in black power, that church will become exactly what Christ is not. Now let's backtrack because that sounds like a prophetic word. Yeah. So this book came out first in 1969. 20 years later, he recognizes that, hey, I need to come back in here and I need to address some things in 1989. So he writes in 1969, let me, let me read that again, because I think some people need to hear it. He said, unless the empirical denominational church makes a determined effort to recapture the man Jesus through a total identification with the suffering poor as expressed in black power, that church will become exactly what Christ is not. This was a warning. If you do not go back to the origins of who Christ actually is, if you do not begin to identify with the oppressed and the poor, then you will become what Christ is not. Hence, we have movements like Hashtag church two. Hashtag leave loud. Because he warned them that if you do not start identifying with what is actually happening in society, Christ identified with the poor, the suppressed, the oppressed. 
you're going to become, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, an irrelevant social club. And people are going to look at you and say, you do not have a relevance for the time and for the moment in which we are in. And did we not see that? We saw that. Because as the Black Lives Matter movement gained influence and gained traction, we saw people saying, hey, we need to see believers out in these streets. And if we don't see you out in these streets, you're going to become exactly what Christ is not because Christ was with the people. Good evening. He says that most churches see an irreconcilable conflict between Christianity and black power is evidenced not only by the de facto segregated structure of their community, which we discussed on both Monday and Tuesday, about the physical ways that segregation has happened in our communities, but by their typical response to riots. I deplore the violence, but sympathize with the reasons for the violence. Churchmen, laymen, and ministers alike apparently fail to recognize their contribution to the ghetto condition through permissive silence, except for a few resolutions which they usually pass once a year or immediately following a riot and through their co-tenancy of a dehumanizing social structure whose existence depends on the continued enslavement of black people. If the church is to remain faithful to its Lord, it must make a decisive break with the structure of this society by launching a vehement attack on the evils of racism in all forms. This man wrote this in night. 1969. So, because the church was slow in moving its feet to launch a vehement attack on the evils of racism in all forms, other people rose up and said, here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do. And so all last summer, into the fall, what do we see? We saw marches. We saw what, what is being labeled, I believe, as the largest worldwide protest in history for what happened to George Floyd. And that was not started although there were Christians involved, that was not primarily started through the church. So because it wasn't started through the church, then unfortunately we had people from the church attempt to demonize it. Not realizing this is stuff that has been seething and seething and seething and seething and it finally came to the surface. Because everybody saw murder on film. He said it must become prophetic, demanding a radical change in the interlocking structures of this society. 
This work then is written with a definite attitude. The attitude, he says, of an angry black man disgusted with the oppression of black people in America and with the scholarly demand to be objective about it. Too many people have died and too many people are on the edge of death. In fairness to my understanding of the truth, I could not allow myself to engage in a dispassionate, non-committed debate on the status of the black-white relations in America by assessing the pro and con of black power. The scholarly demand for this kind of objectivity has come to mean being uninvolved or not taking sides. But as Kenneth B. Clark reminds us, when moral issues are at stake, non-involvement and non-commitment and the exclusion of feeling are neither sophisticated nor objective, but naive and violative of the spirit at its best. When human feelings are part of the evidence, they cannot be ignored. Where anger is the appropriate response to exclude the recognition and acceptance of anger and even to avoid the feeling itself as if it were contamination is to set boundaries upon truth itself. If a scholar who studied Nazi concentration camps did not feel revolted by the evidence of the concentration camps, no one would say he was unobjective, but rather they would fear for his sanity and moral sensitivity. Feeling may twist judgment, but the lack of feeling may twist it even more. So in other words, Cohn is simply telling us, yes, my feelings are involved in this. Someone earlier today sent me a video of a white preacher who um, was talking about something he doesn't understand. (laughs) Oh boy, yeah. Anyway, sent me a video clip and he started out by talking about how everyone wants to be woke. And he tried to gaslight his congregation into thinking that just being woke means that you're operating just out of feeling. That you're simply over-emotional about what's happening in your society. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we all know that that's not what being woke is about. Woke is about not just your emotional feeling, right? But it's also intellectual. And it's also a very, having a very good understanding of what has been happening in this country from a historical standpoint and how those dots connect all the way up to the present. So people are trying to use, unfortunately, even white pastors now, are trying to use the word woke as a sort of spiritual slur against people who know how to read, write, walk, and talk, and chew gum at the same time. But guess what? It won't work. So yes, we can have feelings about what's happening, and we can also have knowledge about what's happening as well. Cone writes, The prophet certainly spoke in anger, and there is some evidence that Jesus himself got angry. It may be that the importance of any study in the area of morality or religion is determined in part by the emotion expressed. It seems that one weakness of most theological works 
It's just their coolness in investigating an idea. Is it not time for angry theologians? Is it not time for theologians to get upset, he writes? To say that this book was written in anger and disgust is to suggest that it is not chiefly written for black people. At least it is no handbook or collection of simply helpful hints on how to conduct a revolution. No one can advise another person on when or how to die or, in my opinion, on what hill they plan to die on. This is a word to the oppressor, a word to Whitey, not in hope that he will listen. And he writes here, after King's death, who can hope? Remember, he's writing this after the assassination of both Well, JFK, Malcolm X, and Martin. But in the expectation that my own existence will be clarified. If in this process of speaking for myself, I should happen to touch the souls of black brothers, including black men in white skins, so much the better. I believe that all aspiring black intellectuals share the task that Leroy Jones has described for the black artist in America to aid in the destruction of America as he knows it. So what does that mean? Does that mean burn things down? Maybe it means deconstructing. Maybe it means using your gifts, your skills, your talents to decolonize and help people to come out of mindsets that are detrimental. His role is to report and reflect so precisely the nature of the society that other men will be moved by the exactness of his rendering. If they are black men, that they will grow strong through this moving, having seen their own strength and weakness. And if they are white men, tremble and go mad because they will be drenched with the filth of evil. I am critical of white America, Cone writes, because this is my country. And what is mine must not be spared my emotional and intellectual scrutiny. Although my motive for writing was not and did not dare to be dependent upon the response of white people, I do not rule out the possibility of creative change, even in the lives of oppressors. It is illegitimate to sit in judgment on another man deciding how he will or must respond. That is another form of oppression. So Cone is putting it out there. He's like, look, I'm not writing this for the white gaze. However, if a white person picks up this writing and it brings about a change in their life, so be it. But he's clearly saying, I'm writing for my people. I'm going to express my emotions. I'm going to express my anger, but I'm also going to use my intellect as well. Chapter one, toward a constructive definition of black power. Cone begins by quoting Frederick Douglass, and I have heard this several times and used it myself. Douglass says, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. 
They want rain without thunder and lightning. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but there must be a struggle. Frederick Douglass. There has been and still is much debate among the critics of black power regarding the precise meaning of the words. The term black power was first used in the civil rights movement in the spring of 1966 by Stokely Carmichael to designate the only appropriate response to white racism. A response to white racism. Since that time, many critics have observed that there is no common agreement regarding its definition. In one sense, this is not surprising since every new phenomenon passes through stages of development and the advocates of black power need time to define its many implications. But in another sense, this criticism is surprising since every literate person knows the imprecision, the inability of a word to describe accurately the object of reality to which it points. This is simply a characteristic of all languages. The complexity of this problem is evident in the development of modern analytical philosophy. We are still in the process of defining such terms like democracy, good, and evil. In fact, the ability to probe for deeper meaning of words as they relate to reality is what makes the intellectual pursuit interesting and worthwhile. But if communication is not to reach an impasse, there must be agreement on the general shape of the object. Meaningful dialogue is possible because of a man's abilities to use words as symbols for the real. Without this, communication ceases to exist. For example, theologians and political scientists may disagree on what they consider the fine points regarding the precise meaning of Christianity and democracy, but there is an underlying agreement regarding the reference. The same is true of the words black power. To what object does it point? What does it mean when used by its advocates? It means, quote, complete emancipation of black people from white oppression by whatever means black people deem necessary. So for some people, black people, black power may mean disassociating. For some people, black power may mean aggregating. For some people, black power may mean I'm going to go about my business and I'm going to be as excellent as I possibly can in the society in which I live. The methods may include selective buying, boycotting, marching, or even rebellion. Black power means black freedom, self-determination, wherein black people no longer view themselves as without human dignity, but as men, as human beings with the ability to carve out their own destiny. In short, Stokely Carmichael would say, black power means TCB, take care of business. Black folks taking care of black folks' businesses, not on the terms of their oppressor, but on the terms of those who are oppressed. It is analogous to Albert Camus's understanding of the rebel. The rebel says no and yes. 
He says no to conditions that are considered intolerable and yes to that something within him which is worthwhile and which must be taken into consideration. To say no means that the oppressor has overstepped his bounds and that there is a limit beyond which they shall not go. It means that oppression can be endured no longer in the style that the oppressor takes for granted. To say no is to reject the humiliating orders of the master, and by so doing, to affirm that something which is placed above everything else, including life itself. To say no means that death is preferable to life if the latter is devoid of freedom. Um, I think that was made really, really evident with the last scene in Black Panther. Lots of people like to quote that now about bury me with my ancestors. You know, I'd rather be, I'd rather die than be in this state or in this condition, right? That Killmonger says, here's another version of it here written in 1969, better to die on one's feet than to live on one's knees. This is what black power means. It is in this light that the slogan freedom now ought to be interpreted. Like Camus's phrase, all or nothing, freedom now means that the slave is willing to risk death because he considers these rights more important than himself. Therefore, he is acting in the name of certain values which he considers are common to himself and to all men. That is what Henry Garnet had in mind when he said, rather die freemen than live to be slaves. That is what black power means. A further clarification of the meaning may be found in Paul Tillich's analysis of the courage to be, which is the ethical act in which a man affirms his being in spite of those elements of his existence which conflict with his self-affirmation. Black power, then, is a humanizing force because it is the black man's attempt to affirm his being, his attempt to be recognized as a thou in spite of the other the white power which dehumanizes him. The structure of white society attempts to make black being into non-being or nothingness. The essential philosophy non-being is usually identified as that which threatens an actual being. It is that ever-present possibility of the inability to affirm one's existence. The courage to be then is the courage to affirm your being by striking at every dehumanizing force which threatens your human being-ness. And as Tillich goes on to say, he who is not capable of a powerful self-affirmation in spite of the anxiety of non-being is forced into a weak, reduced self-affirmation. Now, trying to get people to understand this, Trying to get people to understand that part of black power is your ability to define your own human beingness. It's your ability to define how you are to be seen in this society and to not take crap from neither black people nor white people who want to display you or to display your people in a way that dehumanizes them, 
is a whole battle in and of itself. Last week, I was having this battle on one of my social media pages because I brought up a show that dehumanizes and attempts to make us into nothingness by the way that we are portrayed on this particular show. And people said, oh, you're moralizing. It's just entertainment. It's not that deep. You need to get a life. No, what I was addressing was the non-beingness and the nothingness that was being made out of the lives of black people. It ain't cool. It ain't never been cool. It's not ever going to be cool as far as I'm concerned. It's nothing to be laughed at and it's nothing to be made fun of. So I like this point because he is getting at something here that is not just about the responsibility that we have, right? Or the power that we express in the fact that we are human. But it's also the power that we have in pushing back against images that want to paint us as non-being and as the writer here says, as nothingness. I don't know about you, but I get tired of seeing shows that represent us as nothingness. That we're not about nothing. That we aren't doing anything of of importance to humanity that we aren't contributing to humanity in a way that is meaningful that too is problematic i put up an article today from a show that a lot of people watch and i'm done reading for today from a show that a lot of people watch and again the actress of the show because it is acting pointed out the fact that they specifically cast people for the show. The show is The Bachelorette, I think. I think that's it. But she said they they cast black men who specifically are not interested in black women. And they cast these black men, the only she said the only black men they cast for the show were men Black men who were specifically not interested in black women. But they cast them for her to be one of her selections. And she said she was crying on the show because of what they selected for her. And when she went to them and asked why they did it, they told her they found it interesting. In other words, we think that this is a game. This is a this is yet another part of our social experiment. And rather than realizing that this is your life we're playing with, we cast people on a show that would make you feel rejected when their supposed point was to be a suitor for you. But you cast people who have are dealing with some internalized issues concerning their own ethnicity because you thought it would be interesting. That's actually a form of 
how can we put it? Psychological warfare. To cast someone on a show that's supposed to be wooing you or romancing you, but you know you have cast people that would reject that person because that's not what they're interested in at all. Which means she didn't stand a chance with any of the black men on the show, even though she was looking for a partner that looked like her. So when people say to me things like, it's just entertainment, I just want to reassure you, it's never just entertainment. They actually put together what's called focus groups. And those focus groups research and they study human behavior and how we respond to certain things before they cast for a show like that. Before they put out a television series, before they finish writing a movie, there are focus groups and they look at how these groups respond, how people respond to the setting in a film. Sometimes they change the ending of a film based on how their focus group or their research group or their um, research subjects respond. So I want people to understand that when you see dehumanizing images of black people, that it's not just random. It didn't just randomly hop into the script. It didn't just randomly hop onto the camera. And in her case, the cast wasn't just randomly chosen. They were deliberately selected for a black woman because they didn't like black women. If I was her, there would be a lawsuit. (laughs) I'm just saying. So this is our discussion tonight on black power. We're just warming up. That was it. Part of chapter one. Let me know what you are thinking. I'm going to slide through the comments here. And if you want to um, join me in conversation, I will see if I can bring you on. I see lots of green cameras tonight. So let me try to just invite you on. And I will start with uh, Lady Barbara this time. So let me see if it'll let me bring you on. If you've been listening to us tonight by Anchor.fm, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your time and attention. Have a great and wonderful evening. And we will see you on tomorrow. By the way, before we uh, go into our discussion, I will not be broadcasting tomorrow at 6 p.m. because I will be on a show um, presenting at 7.30 p.m. on tomorrow. So we will not have our regular Daring Dialogue show at 6, but you can join me at 7.30 p.m. I will be on the YouTube channel T-E-O... Let me make sure I spell it right. T-E-O-T-W is the YouTube channel, and that stands for the End of the World Ministries. I will be on there having a very interesting conversation so you can join me there. I won't tell you what it is. You just have to join me 7.30 p.m. on YouTube. I will put the YouTube channel down in the bottom so you can join. Thank you for your time and attention. 
Take care, those of you listening by Anchor FM, and have a good evening.